You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by Michael Carlin's thriller, Uncorking a Murder. Buy in paperback and ebook versions wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Unquirking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm very excited to share with you my recent conversation with Linwood Barclay, a former columnist for the Toronto Star and the author of several critically acclaimed novels, including Too Close to Home and No Time for Goodbye. One of the things we talk about in this interview involves Linwood's advice for aspiring authors. And in addition to some, you know, tried and true advice like, you know, read a lot and write a lot. He talks about the ability to deal with rejection because that's something that all writers face. You know, we get it when we query agents and publishers. And of course, there's always rejections when it comes to customer reviews. And you really have to have a thick skin to stay motivated to make it as a writer. I mean, I certainly could wallpaper my office with all the rejection letters I've gotten over the years. It's just a fact of life. And this actually reminded me of one rejection that I still haven't been able to let go of to this day. The year was 1994, and I was in college um, running unopposed for a spot on the executive committee of my fraternity, which was Kappa Sigma. I should say, which is Kappa Sigma. It's still around, and so am I. Uh, I was running unopposed for this spot. That's actually a very critical part of this story, because when you run opposed, you really don't expect to lose, do you? Well, as a formality, I go into our chapter meeting, and I have to make a speech. And the speech was going well until one answer to a question I was asked made the entire room go silent. And I I could feel the energy totally leave the room after I gave my answer. So let me give you a little context. Um, Like a lot of college fraternities, Kappa Sigma has an initiation ritual. And the position that I was going for had to not only master the ritual as part of that position, but also encourage the brothers, you know, the members of the chapter to become proficient in the ritual as well. So I was asked what my plan was to make the chapter 100% proficient in our initiation ritual. And I uh, realized that this was not the right answer now. But at the time, I said that I didn't think that that could be done. It's too lofty a goal. And I did feel like it was too lofty a goal. I mean, we didn't actually have a bunch of you know, type A alpha males in our fraternity. These were guys who, you know, the, the biggest activity most of them had during the day was getting off the couch, you know, while they were watching Ricky Lake, driving 100 yards up the road to store 24 and buying dip. And I don't mean the kind of dip that you put your potato chips in. I mean the dip that you stick in your mouth and you start spitting all over the place, which is very disgusting. So, you know, I said that I didn't think it'd be done. It was a lofty goal but that I would, you know, work with anybody who expressed interest to teach them the ins and outs of our, you know, sacred tradition. And I say that in air quotes because we had a sacred tradition. Well, I left the room and the chapter voted. And as if I didn't have to remind you, I'll do it one more time. I was running unopposed. So it's fair to say that I was more than a bit shocked when I lost to a guy who declared his candidacy right after my speech. So that, boys and girls, men and women listening to this podcast, was my first exposure to the shit show that is politics. That night, I learned that it's much more important to tell people what they wanted to hear versus what was right and what was true. It's a lesson I keep with me to this day. But here's something you should all want to hear, and that is my conversation with the congenial Linwood Barclay. I'm I'm in Stanford, Connecticut. Oh, okay. That's not far from where I'm from. Well, I in my research I noticed that you were born in Darien. I was. I mean, actually, the hospital was in New Haven, but yeah, we lived in Darien. That's right. 
Do you? Uh, oh, I know. I mean, we would, if we haven't been down there a while, but every time we did, we'd always go to the, you know, whenever we would go back for a visit, you know, since we were, since being grown, uh, we'd always head to the Stanford Mall. The sta- <laughs> well, you, leveled, crazy place. <laughs> you, you probably wouldn't recognize it now if you haven't been in a while. They've made some changes to it. It's been a long time since we were there. It's been over, it's been over 20 years since we were down there. Do you, uh, do you remember anything about growing up in Darien? Not much. Um, not very much. I mean, we, my parents moved away from there when I was about just about turning four. Okay. So not a lot. I remember standing out at the end of the street and watching cars go by, and at the bottom of the street there was the train tracks at the bottom of Leroy Avenue. And, you know, we would go visit friends of my parents, somewhere i can't remember where and so forth but you know don't remember it a lot about i remember the house that we lived in which i don't even think is there anymore but uh, but i don't remember too much about it because these days darian is pretty much if, if you think of the top one percent of income earners in the united states darian probably has the top one percent of the one percent <laughs> yeah yeah well you know it was it was a bit like that even then i think um but uh it's yeah i believe it i definitely believe it's like that so you you left darien at a young age and where did uh, where did the family move to we moved to a place called clarkson ontario in canada which was a suburb of toronto and later became part of a much larger it was clarkson and other you know small towns that were all drawn under the umbrella of a place called mississauga which is what it's still called. So Mississauga is now this immense suburb city uh, to immediately to the uh, to the west of Toronto. So that was yeah. Then we moved there in a house that was just just being built. My dad had been offered. My dad worked in advertising, and he was a commercial artist. And he would draw. You know, like at that time, all the car ads were uh, illustration. Sure. And he would draw the cars, and so he drew mostly Fords. And he got offered a job with an advertising agency in Canada. And my parents thought maybe that'd be kind of an adventure. I'm like, let's 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 look at that. So that's what they did. They moved up. Uh, they moved up here. And it it sounds like you stayed up there. I did. I did. I've never moved back. Um, but uh, and uh, and of course they had. They only and the place that we moved to we. Even it, we kind of, about within about 10 years, moved from it because what my dad was really good at, um, nobody wanted anymore. Photography killed automotive illustration and advertising. And so my parents bought a cottage resort in Trader Park uh, to run that was in about a, about 100 miles northeast of Toronto in a kind of uh, an area called the Kawartha Lakes District. It's sort of a tourism area. So we kind of moved up that way. So fair to say you spent a lot of time growing up in a trailer park? Yeah, I did. I did. I, um, well, the thing is, it was we lived in like a mass, like a huge mobile home, but the trailers that were in the park were the, the small travel ones, the kind of people would find their cars. And we had cottages there and all that kind of stuff. So I lived um, in that, like permanently. Like we moved, like we were sort of back and forth between that and Clarkson for a while, but sort of permanently started living there when I started high school. So I lived there for, I guess, you know, the better part of nine, ten years. So you're, 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 you're kind of living in a community where people kind of come and go and they, they probably park for a little while and then they, then they kind of pick up and leave. Is that, is that right? That's certainly true in the summer. Although a lot of our, a lot of people that came uh, throughout the summer, they would park their trailers there for the, for the whole season. So you'd, you'd, you know, you'd see the same people coming up every weekend and in the cottages, it would be the same people kind of every year. You know, this family from Ohio would book cabin five for the first two weeks of July. And this family from Pennsylvania would book cabin six for the last week of August. So you saw the same faces, but they were always kind of rotating in and out uh, every year. And um, and then, of course, once it was past the Canadian Thanksgiving, which is early October, uh, we closed down, and so we still lived there. But then the place was just like, except for us, was a ghost town. Like everything, just everybody was gone. Yeah, you're, you're like in the in the Overlook Hotel on The Shining. Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah. It had a little less space in the mobile home. Um, <laughs> That's right. Not enough, not 
not much space to to sort of ride one's uh, Hot Wheels around the hallways and run into twins or anything. So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was going to uh, say probably but, no creepy twins uh, hanging outside of a yeah, door. At least we didn't get at least we didn't get snowed in. I mean, we were only you know three miles from the closest little village and so forth. But but yeah, we were there you know in the snow and uh, for the winter. And then we would reopen around the second weekend of May every year. Did you meet any interesting people or have any interesting experiences back then, kind of growing up in that sort of uh, you know, the, the cottage trailer hardy? Uh, there was, well, a lot of them were just a lot of very interesting people that would came in and out of the park that introduced you sort of to the wider world. And there was one guy who came up who was this great guy. I loved him, and he was he was a private detective. And I used to, you know, he used to tell me stories, and I'd pick his brain and. There was this other sweet old guy who was in his 70s from Pennsylvania who would take me fishing. Cause, I mean, here I ran, was running a, I was essentially, the part I didn't get to was I essentially ran that business from the age of 16 on because my dad died when I was 16. Wow, okay. And so I was, you know, my mom owned it and managed it, but I mean, I did all the grunt work. I mean, she didn't haul out the boats and clean them and she didn't cut the grass and she didn't do all that stuff. So I was doing all of that. And so I had a lot of great, you know, Friends uh, who who were guests who came up, and a lot of them were, as it turned out, really were were, were grown up men who I think were sort of substitute father figures for me, who who took me under their wing because they knew my dad had died, and you know I'd have a busted pipe to deal with, and they'd show me how to fix it, and and uh, and so forth. I have to but ask, it was, yeah, it's an interesting environment. I wrote a book about it called Last Resort. That's came out many years ago well that, that's a segue into my next question because i was curious as to whether or not that your experience is kind of kind of growing up in that you know in the cottage environment the trailer park um and then even your father passing away at it i mean 16 is a pretty hard i mean it, any mm-hmm. time is a hard time to lose one's father uh yeah. presuming of course you're close but um, i was just curious to know like how those experiences may have impacted your your later writing well, but I mean, I was in the room the day my dad died, and I was 16, and there was that was a, a hugely pivotal moment for me in so many ways because all of the responsibility in many ways of looking at the family fell to me because my mom, she, my mom sent me to the funeral home to pick out a casket because she said she wasn't up to it. Yeah. And my brother, who was 11 years older, had returned back from a, an unfortunate stint in the uh, in the U.S. Army. He'd had a he was honorably discharged because of a complete nervous breakdown. So he was mentally ill. And what year was that? But that would have been, now we're talking like in 71. Okay, so Vietnam is still going on at that point. Oh, yeah. He never went because he had a breakdown before he would have gone, and he was he was highly skilled in languages and probably would have been used in some sort of intelligence capacity, but he just, he, you know, he, 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 he had a breakdown. So I was kind of looking after both of them. And helping run the camp, so I had this astonishing amount of responsibility. Which at the time, you just you know you don't even really think about the fact that you have all this responsibility. You just kind of suck it up, and this is what you have to do. So that was pivotal for me. Like so, I mean, I even say to even this, to this day, I just assume that nobody else knows how to do anything because when I was 16, 17, 18, I was doing everything for everybody anyway. And you know, I have to be reminded sometime, I think, by my own kids and stuff that. They're quite confident. You know, they <laughs> to do stuff. All right. And uh, and so that was that was really a big thing for me. And and so that changed just in terms of how I dealt with life was in terms of being responsible and so forth, having to do like I didn't have any of this sort of wild teenage years of abandon where you go out and you get pissed and and so forth because I was looking after everybody. And um, I like to say that I didn't really start drinking until I had teenagers. But um, <laughs> that's what that's what really interested. That's what I thought I need. I need some sort of coping strategy. But um, so there was that, and I think the the business of losing a father. I mean, at least one writer uh, who interviewed me once in Toronto, a friend of mine, said, "Well, is that why you're always writing about loss or people going missing because you lost your dad when you were 16?" And I thought, "Oh, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> you know, it had never occurred to me." little psychoanalysis so, there for you. Yeah, a little bit. So uh, there was that. Um, and, of course, I was writing like crazy then anyway. I've been writing since I was in third grade. So I was always still writing stories all through that period and sending things off, you know, sending novels to publishers 
I was 19 and 20, which thankfully they all sat back. Um, <laughs> I think we, we all have like a few of those somewhere that'll never yeah. see the light of day. But the other, you know, if you, and I was sort of working up to this, the other sort of really I had two very important figures in my life around that time in my late teens and early 20s who were writers. And one of them was a very, very well-known Canadian literary writer, a woman named Margaret Lawrence, and who was uh, a writer-in-residence where I went to university, and we became good friends and stayed good friends until she had passed away 30 years ago. And the other one you've probably heard of was Kenneth Miller, who wrote under the name Ross McDonald and wrote the Lou Archer Mysteries. Yep. And... I was obsessed with his books. Like, I started reading them when I was about 15, and I just thought, this is what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be Ross McDonald. I want to write these kind of novels. And, and so I wrote a letter to his publisher in New York from way up there in the sticks of Ontario and said, first of all, I'm thinking of, you know, I want to do an essay. I was in university by this time, and I want to do uh, a thesis on crime fiction, but largely focusing on your work. And can you point me to any sort of things that maybe I should know about? And to my amazement, he wrote back and said, there was a Newsweek cover story, and there was this, and there was that. And then I did this really awful thing. I wrote him back, and I said, thank you very much. And I've written a novel, and can I send it to you? And, you know, and of course you can say no, and blah, blah, blah. It was terrible. What a he- I realize now what an immense imposition that was. Sure. He, he wrote back. He said, sure. So I had a very long correspondence back and forth with him, and then he he got in touch with me and he said, Damn, my wife and I, Margaret Miller, the mystery writer, we're coming to Canada and we're going to be up your way. You want to have dinner? And I went, you got to be kidding me. So I mean, one of the most amazing nights of my life was when I had spent the evening with you know with my idol and having dinner and what giving him a tour of the university and chatting through the evening. And so that was immensely, you know, I think another hugely pivotal moment for me because I mean, here was this guy who I revered who read my novel that I'd written at the age of like 20 or 21 and while it was probably far from perfect he thought there was something there and he said yeah let's get together while I've been That gives you that that little bit of confidence to to keep going I mean I'm sure I mean it, it, you, you kind of referenced it before but there's so much rejection that comes with you know right. sending stuff off to publishers just that one little bit of encouragement is enough to to kind of keep going, isn't it? I mean, even even all. I mean, I can tell you that it was. I can even tell you it was May first, nineteen seventy six, and all these years later, I still can't believe it happened that I spent the night and had dinner with him and chatted and so forth. Like it doesn't seem possible. And and I've written about it several times. You know, I've written about it for you know mystery uh, journals, and I the piece about it is in you know John Connolly and. Um, Declan Hughes did a book a few years ago about asking authors to write about sort of the hundred books that, that were pivotal for them or important to them. I wrote a piece about that whole event, that whole incident for them. And, but it just seems, you know, amazing that it happened. So you said you've been writing since the third grade, you said? Yeah, I've started writing stories about grade three. And what, what, what encouraged you to start doing that? Or like what, what clicked inside you that that's something that you wanted to pursue? Well, I think what really got it going, and this is probably not the answer that, you know, great literary critics <laughs> would like to hear, but it was television. So I grew up in the 60s, and I loved television. And I loved, in particular, a spy show at the time, which actually rebooted as a movie a couple of years ago called The Man from Uncle. Oh, sure. I was, I was obsessed with it. I just loved it so much. And I thought, one episode a week isn't enough for me. I need more. So I thought, well, I'll just write my own uncle adventures. And I, and it was taking me a while to, you know, to, I needed to have some speed to go with this, to, to be able to do it quickly. So I got my dad to teach me how to type when I was in about grade five. I said, how do we, how do I, you know, use this big old huge clunk and royal manual typewriter we've got. And he showed me here, you just where your fingers go, this key, this finger hits this key, and blah, blah. so I started writing. And so I was writing, by the time I was in grade seven, I was writing 30, 40, 50 page type novellas based on Uncle, you know, based on those characters. And I probably did about 10 of them, or nine or 10 of them. And that really got me excited about writing. Like I had these stories in my head and I had to get them out. And then 
by the time I was in mid-teens and over that, I thought, well, I'd like to be, I'd love to write for television, which there's not a really high demand for in the cottage resort trader park region of Ontario, <laughs> and, and strangely enough. And um, and then I started in the, you know like writing teen writing novels and so forth and trying to get them published and, and uh, but it was but it was TV I mean I wrote I wrote my own like we'd call it fan fiction now but I wrote my own fan fiction I wrote novellas based on Man from Uncle and Mannix and uh, and Mission Impossible and The Invaders I did all of those wrote like wrote all kinds of them. <clears throat> And you know nobody read them. I mean, like I just I can't even remember if my parents were my everybody read them, but I just I and I just had to do them for me. Do you still have them somewhere? Do you still like a, I imagine they're all hard copy? Yeah, I think I think a lot of them are in a box somewhere. And I, every once in a while, I'm looking at it, I think if I ever reach the point where I'm famous enough that people are going to want to see my early stuff, I should really burn all of this. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think at this stage there's any great risk, but at some point, you know, if that were to happen, I think I really need to get rid of this shit. But, um, but yeah, I think I still have a lot of it. You know, we all have to have that jumping off point, though. I mean, for you, it's, it's you know, the man from UNCLE and, and those spy TV shows. But, you know, there's there's another pretty famous story. You know, somebody, a woman, E.L. James, writing fan fiction yep. for Twilight, turns into, um, for better or for worse, Fifty Shades of Grey. and. Oh, I know. Um, you know, it's uh, you know, for me, it was I. I loved, um, and this is probably over oversharing too much about <laughs> yours truly. But when I was a young kid, my grandmother lived with us because she was sick, and she would always watch her afternoon soap operas. So you know, me having not much to do after school, I'd sit and watch soap operas with her. So my mm-hmm. first book was actually a soap opera. Um, it was oh, like yeah. a parody of a soap opera. But it's mm-hmm. just it's just funny how how those experiences and particularly like television it always stays with me. Oh um, yeah. How it, you know, and I rewatched that. I mean, I've I mean, I rewatched. I watched a, a, a first season Uncle episode a couple nights ago. One of my favorites. I mean, the show ran for four years, and the only really good episodes are all in the first year. And and so I have the DVD set, and I'll throw one in every once in a while and think, yeah, this stuff. I loved it when I was a kid. Some of it, some of it, not a lot of it holds up too well, but some of it does. It's tough. I might, you know, my wife and I, we're, we're in our mid forties now. We've got, um, three 16 year olds at home. We have triplets mm-hmm. and I mean, really, and people say there's nothing on TV, but I, we can't find anything decent on television to watch. So we actually have taken to watching old shows that we grew up with. So oh, we'll yeah. watch uh, emergency. We'll watch, um, chips. We'll watch um, Columbo is is a favorite. Oh, we watch Columbo yeah. every single night now. That's another one that I I wrote fan fiction of when I was later in my teens was Columbo. I just I think I have all of that on DVD. It was just magnificent. Oh yeah, he's uh, the, 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 I, and I love every single story. Like it, even a bad Columbo is better than you know some of the the better things that are on TV now. And I always rate them by which ones have the best last five minutes. Yeah. You know, those are the ones that I really like to watch again. You know, like even the one that Steven Spielberg directed. Yep, is is beautifully shot and it's well acted and it's really good. But it has such a limp ending. It's not it's not a good ending. It's not a strong ending. And and uh, but the ones that have those this this crackerjack endings, I just love those. Yeah, Steven Spielberg was was that the one with um um. I want to say Spock, uh, <laughs> Leonard Nimoy. No, it's the the, uh, the oh, that's a good one. I love that one. Um, that's not a uh, Spielberg didn't. That's a stitch in time. Spielberg didn't direct that. That's where Spock is. In Leonard Nimoy is a surgeon. That's a good one. No, Spielberg directed the one about the writing team of Jack. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's it's right. Really nicely shot. Like you look at it and think there there are camera movements in that, and you think that nobody else in TV would even do that. That yeah. he was doing. It's great, but it has a very – it's really good all the way through until the very end. Until the end. After ending, pretty, pretty <laughs> sad. Well, so did, did that detective, private detective you met when you were working in the trailer park, did, did he influence you to become a, a crime writer also or a mystery writer? Oh, no. I was already doing it. I was okay. already, That's why I finished the talk because I was already interested in that. Gotcha. And he was a lovely guy. He looked like, at the time, he looked like Lou Grant from the Mary Tyler Moore Show. <laughs> but he was very droll. He had this wonderful sense of humor, really low-key, and an Italian guy from uh, Buffalo. And I used to hang out with him. 
and uh, I just loved him. I mean, he had great stories, but he also just was really just a funny guy to hang out with. But I was already interested, so I loved hearing his stories. So, I mean, so you've I mean, got... He was the guy who taught... He was the guy that told one One really authentic fact that he gave me about being a private detective is that you need some kind of a bottle in the car to take a piss in when you're on surveillance. <laughs> and I thought, oh, of course. Like, what are you going to do? So, I mean, that was that was one of the first. And I, I've used that as, a, as a, actually a plot point in, in an early one of my funny mysteries. Interesting. So let, let's talk about... You know, finally getting published. So you're writing the fan fiction. You know, you're you're typing 30, 40 page novellas. Um, those aren't necessarily being read by anybody or going anywhere. What What's the first thing that actually gets published, or what's your your path to actually publishing your first novel? Well, yeah. So I mean, I couldn't get a job as a best selling novelist at the age of 22 for <laughs> reasons that I can't understand. And so I thought, well, where the kind of guy get paid money to write every day? So I went into the Peterborough Examiner uh, newspaper in Peterborough, Ontario, and offered to write news stories for them for free, which was very, you know, enticing for them because they were like the cheapest organization on the planet. But um, but I wrote a couple pieces for them, and they hired me as a, like a reporter for this would have been 1977 for about 130 bucks a week, which back then was not a lot of money then either, and. Uh, <laughs> And so I worked in newspapers, and I was there for a couple of years. I went to a small paper outside of Toronto for two years, and then in 1981, I uh, got a, I went to the Toronto Star, which is the largest circulation paper in Canada. I went in there, the newsroom, massive newsroom, newsroom where they filmed the Killing Fields, actually, but that's all those scenes. And they said, "Well, uh, we don't really need reporters. What we need are copy editors. Do you have a lot of copy editing experience?" And I said, uh, "Sure." which, you know, was a lie. And uh, and so I got hired to work on the desk, and I was good at it. I was really good copywriter. So <clears throat> for 12 years at the Star, I was, from 1981 to 93, I was assistant city editor, I was chief copy editor, I was news editor, I became the editor of the life section, all this sort of stuff. And then an opportunity came up in 93 to write a humor column. And I applied, and I got it. And so from starting in 93... I was writing three columns a week of sort of, you know, either domestic scenes, funny columns, or political stuff that was, you know, political satire. I was, I was our, my paper's Dave Barry kind of thing. And during that period of doing that, I did four books that only came out in Canada. One was a collection of columns, one was a memoir about that time I ran the trailer park. Mm-hmm. And I did one political satire book about a premier of Ontario at the time whose guts I hated, um, and a, a funny book about fatherhood. But so I did all those. They were only published in Canada, um, you know. And then in about 2001, I had this great idea for a novel, like a funny thriller. And I found an agent who, when I, it was funny, when I first called her, she said, comics, nobody, but, you know, like, Comic builders are very hard to do, and they're not usually successful unless you're, you know, um, Janet Ivanovich or Donald Westlake. But you can send me the first chapter if you want by email. So I did, and she called me the next day, and she said, send me the second chapter. <laughs> so, so my first novel that came out was a book called Bad Move that came out in 2004. And I did four books about that character that was in that book named Zach Walker. Mm-hmm. Four books about him with Bantam in the U.S. And collectively, the four of them sold about 63 copies, I think. <laughs> and uh, and so my agent said, you know, um, your next book should be not funny, and it should be a dark thriller, and forget doing a series, you need to switch gears. And you need a great hook. You know, like a thriller that would be like a big thriller. And I thought, okay. So I sent her an email one morning and said, what about a girl who wakes up one night, uh, wakes up in the morning, and her whole family's gone. She went to bed the night before having a big fight with her family. She wakes up in the morning. Her mother's gone. Her brother's gone. Her her, her, her dad's gone. And 25 years go by, and she's never known where they went in the night. And... You know, did they decide to just up and leave her and leave her, you know, and leave her behind, or were they all killed and somehow the killers missed her? And which would be worse? Would it be worse to find out that everybody in your family was dead, or that they were all alive and had abandoned you? She said, "That's it." 
she said, that's a great hook for a thriller. She says to me, because she's the agent, she says, what happened to the family? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> she, she said, you'll figure that out. <laughs> so I wrote that book, and that book changed my life. That book was called No Time for Goodbye. Um, it became, we sold it in Germany and England, and in England it became the single best-selling novel of the year in the UK in 2008. Uh, it's done several million copies since then, and so that's when I left the star. That's when I left newspapers and started writing full time. So, how, how does your life change after that big break? Like, what's the what are the biggest impacts it actually has on on, on you as a person? It's a mixed, it's a real mixed bag of things. I mean, first of all, it's wonderful, and you think now I can I can, and I'm I'm very you know chicken, uh, very conservative financially in the sense that, you know, I don't want to leave, I'm not going to leave a salaried job where I have a dental plan for, uh, to take a chance on being a writer and so forth. I, ha- I wanted to know that I would make multiples of my newspaper salary writing books before I would take a chance of quitting. And because that book hit it big and it had hit it big in Germany, I thought, I think I can do it. So there was that security, but along, you know, but there's only so much security. There's also... Uh, the security you get in one area is matched by insecurity in others. Because when you have an immensely huge book, uh, then you have to do another one. And, you know, will, will the book have been a, a one-shot wonder? And everybody will say, well, you know, I did that great book, No Time for Goodbye, but then he did this other one, and it was pretty bad, and then it's over. So can you do it again, or can you do it, if not as, as well as that first one, can you do it? pretty well, you know, enough to keep going. And so, but that was, and there's always that kind of insecurity, can I do another one? And uh, and so it worked out. I mean, I think as I had written my next book before No Time for Goodbye became a hit, so mm-hmm. I was already, I already had it done. And I thought, well, you know what? I So I didn't have to feel frozen by fear, you know, going to do it again. And and as it turned out, that, that UK, I mean, the book that was hit, it, it wasn't a, uh, it, you know, it wasn't a one-shot wonder. We got lucky, and, and the books have all done really well over there since. And then, based on the success of that book in England, you know, it became a huge bestseller in France, and things have gone really well since. And they're just last night they just ran the second part of a series that they made out of my book out of the accident in France, and the ratings were really strong. They did really well, and so, but it's. Uh, but even now, I mean, you always think, "Can I do it again?" Yeah, but you do another one. That's you. Every book you'd like every book to be better than the one that came before, and sometimes it isn't. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like this one's good. It's not as good as the last one, but it's better than the one three ago. And let's hope that the next one. Like you never know. And and I mean, I have books that are my least favorite that people come up and say, oh, that's my favorite book of yours. I love it. And it seems rude to argue with them. Tell them, no, <laughs> that book is a piece of shit. You're wrong. Let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> that's right. You're absolutely wrong. That book is not good. Do you think it was was helpful to you to have that second book or that follow-up finished before um, No Time for Goodbye became such a big hit? I think it probably was because then I wasn't frozen. I thought, well, I've already got a book to come out. And and the, the book that I have to write after No Time for Goodbye as a hit is going to be the second book that people see from me after that. So that helped. And and I actually felt that the second one that came after, the one I had done after that, I think was, I like it even better than No Time yeah. for Goodbye. But No Time for Goodbye is the book that, that, you know, made me, you know, that broke me out. But it's not my favorite of the ones I have done. So d- but it did well for me. And and it sounds like you never went back to to uh, writing about Zach Walker. I never have. I did the four, <clears throat> and I haven't gone back. I, I get I get emails every week from people saying, "Will there be a fifth Zach Walker book?" I mean, the nice thing is is that since the new books have become you know successful, people have gone back to the to the backlist, and they lost. So a lot of people have read those books now more than the sixty three that originally read it. <laughs> and uh, so the people say there'll be another one. I think. Well, I haven't written a Zach novel in twelve years. I wrote the last one in 2006, and so uh, I just don't see it happening. Yeah. I don't think there'll be another one. I mean, the only thing, I mean, you know, there's like five ifs in this sentence, but if somebody wanted option, if somebody made a TV series out of it, and if the series were a hit, then you think, well, maybe, maybe I should go back and write some, but 
this, none of those ifs are have happening at the moment. So. When, um, but but it sounded like those were more like comedic type mysteries. They were. They were. I mean, they were thrillers. They yeah. Were, I mean, they were a lot. Of, a lot happened and a lot was at stake. But they were written in a much lighter tone, and and the situations that I would put the character in were were just somewhat designed to be hilarious. Yeah. And whereas now, I think there's still lots of humor in the books, but I'm not looking for humorous situations. It just comes out more out of dialogue and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Because I was I was curious because I read a lot of like Carl Hyacin and and Elmore yep. Leonard, which are. You know, I, I, Hyacinth specifically, I always get a laugh when I'm reading him, even though it is, you know, kind of uh, the stakes are are usually somewhat high anyway. Um, See, I love, I mean, I love Carl Hyacinth. I've interviewed Carl twice at events in Toronto and just adore his work. But to me, he's not a crime writer. To me, yeah. he is first and foremost a satirist. Yeah. Like if Jonathan Swift were going to write crime novels, that, that would be Hyacinth. <laughs> right. To me, he's not. I just don't think of him as a crime writer yeah. at all. Yeah, uh, he just happens to write about you know he satirizes society and he uses you know bumbling criminal idiots in which to do it. But <laughs> Elmore Leonard though is a legit crime writer who wrote often very you know funny characters. Yeah, but uh, Bahiasen I think is in a class of his own. Yeah, and, he, and you guys are both you know newspaper guys. You both came out of the same yeah. you know that's right the same mold. Um, so when. Um, when when you talk about kind of you know if you know one of those ifs was if somebody options it for a series or a movie, um, one of at least one of your books has been optioned for a movie, hasn't it? Well, we've got there's a few things that have happened. First yeah. of all, they have made a series in France based on the accident. Uh, last year we shot uh, we did a movie in Canada based on my book, uh, Never Saw It Coming. That movie's been made. It's done. Uh, it's got Eric Roberts in it. And uh, if you're in the States, you may not be as familiar with Emily Hampshire, but she's in a TV, a TV series, uh, 12 Monkeys, they did it based mm-hmm. on the movie. And she's in a Canadian series called Schitt's Creek. Oh, I love, I love Schitt's Creek. Well, she's the one, she's the one who runs the motel. She's the only <laughs> person in the show. I love that. Emily, one of my favorite shows. So Emily's in it and a couple other people. So that movie's done. And we're trying to find some way to get it out there this year. And uh, it's, in fact, we're going to New York City on Wednesday because the Soho International Film Festival has accepted that movie into the festival. So we're going to go down for it. Oh, great. So that's been made. The series in, in France has been made. Right now, I'm working with E1 or Entertainment One. Uh, that have, They have optioned my trilogy of not the novels um broken promise far from true and the 23 have been collectively optioned um for a series for them and i've got you know we've been working on the pitch for it and i have a meeting there next week so that's option and kind of in the pipe but we'll see what happens and uh, a few years ago no time for goodbye eric mccormick from will and grace he desperately wanted to make that into a movie and he optioned it twice and he wrote the screenplay for it and everything and i you know met with him and and he you know he really wanted both together but it you know as so often happens it, it didn't and last year uh trust your eyes which is i think my own favorite of the stuff i've done that was that was under option in the uk for a six-part series i was working with a huge like a big time director for that and you know they wanted me to write all six episodes and then midway through the year, networks are like, nah, I don't think we'll do it. So, so you know, I, I, it's interesting getting involved in TV stuff because when you have a book contract, the book does come out. Right. But when you, when you work in TV and other stuff, it's like, who knows? You can put a lot of energy into it and then nothing ever happens. So it's a different, it's I'm finding out. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an area where I go in with much lower expectations because, uh, you know, you just never really know if it'll get made. Yeah, and I, you know, I've talked to other uh, you know writers, authors who who have had you know their books optioned, stories optioned multiple times, and they get to the mm-hmm. point oh, where yeah. you know, they think you know I'll keep taking the check, but I have no expectations that something's actually ever going to come out. That's exactly right. Now, it was fun with Never Saw Coming, the, the Emily Hampshire movie, and I I was asked to write the screenplay for that, which I did, so that was fun. That was good practice for doing a lot of this other stuff. Um, and I and it actually got made, so that was cool. How, how do you Plus find so other ones? Pardon? I was going to say, how do you find transitioning from writing, you know, something the, the length of a novel? You know, in, in my mind, that's eighty thousand plus words. 
Um, yeah. But to, to writing a screenplay and making all those choices of what to cut because something's got to get cut. How do you, how do you fi- how did you find that transition? I well, I don't know. I guess I should say it was really hard. But I just, I mean, I really like screenwriting. I like that process. Yeah, I like it a lot. I mean, I used to do it when I was a kid. I wanted to do that, and I was writing them. But but um, not that I knew anything at the time. But I don't. I'm not. I don't consider every word in the book that I've done so precious that everything has to be saved. I kind of look at it and think, well, how do you sift this down to its essence? Yeah. And when I was doing Never Saw It Coming, I had the book there, and I was about to take chunks of dialogue on it. Finally, I hardly looked at the book at, at all anymore. I just thought, well, what's the basic story here? And you know, you look at the book and you think, well, there's ten pages of backstory, so that's gone. And here's two pages where the hero's just thinking, that's gone. <laughs> And here's a scene that's important, but it goes for six pages. I wonder if I can boil that down to two pages of dialogue, and I did. And, you know, here's a subplot that there's never going to be room for it, and I pitched it. And I wasn't, I didn't feel like all of it was sacred. I thought, how do we, and it's a totally different medium, you know. Yeah. And and I think the idea is not to be faithful to the book, but to be, to be write the best screenplay that you can. Yeah. And even now with working with E1 on the trilogy, I was the first one to propose a major change, which was I think one of the three main characters needs to be a woman because they were all, there were three males in the three books. I said, I think we need to change it. And and then we started talking about other sort of tweaks to the plot of that are different from the novels. And several of them I thought were so good, I thought, shit, I wish I had done that in the book. <laughs> you know, so... And so I think your goal is to make the best TV series you can, not yeah. make it just like the book. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting point. And, and you know, because there's always that argument like, oh, you know, and I, I find this too, you know, books, for me, usually better than the movie. But, you know, that's also not not necessarily up to the, the screenwriter. That's, you know, the director, the actors, and all, all those other moving pieces that go along. And maybe Craft Services was bad that morning. Who knows? Yeah, it's just a different thing. I mean, you know, I mean, I've read the William Goldman's books about screenwriting and adapting novels, and I think one of them was, I think it was the movie Absolute Power with Gene Hackman and, and Ed Harris or whatever, where it's based on a Daniel Silva book, and Goldman started to adapt that, and he realized, like, there's like 40 characters in the first 10 pages. He said, that's just not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like this just not going to work. And so you have to really distill it to essence. You have to look at a book as, as source material or inspiration for what you want to do. Yeah, and, uh, and I I get that. Now, I mean, as we as we you know, think about wrapping up here, I'm I'm always curious to know, you know, somebody who's had the the success you've had. Um, what advice would you give, you know, those you know budding authors? You know, maybe there's a 19 year old at university hunting you down right now, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and maybe you'll invite him to dinner when you when you go to his town. Who knows? But what 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 would you you know, recommend that people who really want to make a career, um, you know, writing novels, what would you recommend they keep in mind? Well, I know that, I mean, I know Stephen King's advice on that. First one is you have to read. If you want to write, you have to read, and you got to read a lot of stuff and, you read, and read different stuff. And, and that's the first thing, because sometimes you hear people say, oh, I really want to write a book, and they say to them, well, who do you read? Oh, I don't have time to read. <laughs> you think, well, you're looking at the wrong profession. You know, and... and so I think that's the first thing. You really have to be interested in in reading and reading other people if you want to do this. You know, it's it's that's and like that's, is, that's like a kid who who wants to be you know a, a bodybuilder and, and compete in bodybuilding competitions, but they they don't lift weights and they'll never lift weights. You know, like I, I don't. Yeah, yeah. Like I like I really think I would like to be in the Olympics, but I really don't like working out. <laughs> right, and I, I don't take direction well. No, and I really I really like watching. TV more. Maybe I like watching the Olympics, but I don't know if I really want to train, but I still want to be in it. Um, but that, that's the first thing, I think. You've got to be reading. And I think that if you want to be a writer, you're already writing. Like, you're writing like I was as a kid, even if no one else is going to read it. You're writing, writing because you just feel you've got these stories in you that you want to tell. And so when I hear people say, yeah, I think I want to write a book someday, and I think, well, maybe you will, but if you really wanted to be a writer, you'd be doing it now, even if it means you work 10-hour shifts in the emergency ward or you, you're teaching all day or whatever. You'd find some way to be writing, so you'd be doing it, I think. 
And if you are one of those people who is doing it, then I think the thing is you just you have to keep at it, and you have to know that there's an awful lot of rejection, and which is I think true for all, whether you're a dancer or an actor or a comedian, like whatever you are, you just have to know that there's going to be a lot of rejection, and you just have to keep you just have to keep going, and and all those stories that you've written that nobody published are still valuable because they taught you how to do something better in the next one. Do you... I mean, I, a few years ago, 10 years ago, I wrote an entire, after I had that success with No Time For Goodbye, I wrote an entire novel that I thought would be the next book. And all the way through it, I thought, I know there's problems, but I'm sure I can fix them later. And then my agent read it, and she said, what a holy mess this is. And she knows, I mean, I write very quickly, but she said, even as quickly as you like knowing how quickly you write, she says, you could write another novel from scratch in less time than it would take to fix all the things that are wrong with this book. Yeah. And so for a couple of days, I thought about stepping in front of a bus. <laughs> and then I decided to suck it up and thought, well, I'm going to write the other idea that I had and just write it. And that entire book has never, I've never gone back to it. I haven't tried to fix it or save it. But I don't regret it because I learned an awful lot and and one of the things I really learned was if you hear a voice in the back of your head that's saying it's not quite working stop mm-hmm. I didn't stop I just kept writing on it well I'll, you know, I'll fix it later. and it wasn't working and and uh, now it's now I'm, I know that if I hear that voice in the back of my head that it's time to stop and regroup when um, I was I was I had a question on my head there and I, I've forgotten what it was um, I know the feeling, <laughs> and you know it. Um, but you know, I'm curious. You, know, you you talk about your agent. Was was she was she? Because I I know the aspiring writers. You know, one of the things that they um, you know deal with is actually finding somebody to represent them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, was was this the first person you you talked? Was your agent the first person you talked to, or, or was there some uh, challenges finding an agent too? She was she was the first. And I had done those four books in Canada without an agent. I just dealt directly with the publishers. And they knew, knew me from the column I did in the Star. Yeah. But doing fiction was another thing. So I was aware of this agent because I, I knew of things that she had represented that were successful, and one of which was sort of in line with the kind of thing I was writing. And so that's why I decided to approach her. Okay. And, and here's what I would say. I mean, my agent probably gets... <laughs> dozens of inquiries every day and the thing is she does look at them all but she doesn't take long so if she opens up you know the first inquiry uh, dear miss so-and-so uh, i have written a collection of poems about pterodactyls and other dinosaurs she knows delete because that's not what she does yeah and you know and if someone else says i've written a book that's just like the Da Vinci Cup, then she hits delete because she knows, well, that's been done, and we don't need another one. So, But she looks. And so what happened with me was she said, all right, send me the first chapter. And so I did. So I do tell people, if you're looking for an agent and you're making an inquiry, be very brief. Don't tell them that you're the next Dan Brown. Don't tell them that you know, you're know you just this genius. Tell them in two sentences who you are and another two sentences about what the book's about, and attach the first chapter. And you'll live or die based on that first page. Yeah. Because if you can't grab somebody, like, like as, as my agent would say, if the plot doesn't work, that can be fixed. But if you can't write, you can't write. And if there's no voice and there's nothing there, it doesn't take long to find out. It's like, and I'm not, this isn't original with me, but somebody said, if you get served a really bad meal, you don't have to eat the whole plate to know it was bad. The first bite tells you. Yeah. And so you can read that first page, and if there's something there, she'll follow it up. But if there's not, it's delete. And I also tell people, don't expect an agent to get back to you if they're not interested. They're not creative writing teachers. They're agents. If your book is not of interest to them, they're just going to delete your thing, and you're not going to hear another word from them, and you're not going to hear why, because that's not your job. And it's tough. So that's brutal, but that's the way it is. Yeah. And so, and that's, that's what I tell people. And, and do you think that, you know, in this day and age where, um, you know, the, the independent uh, publishing has, has been on the rise, you know, we've got the, the Kindle platform, the Nook, all that stuff, 
you know, the, the distrib- for the most part, distribution has been solved, you know, by electronic distribution. Um, does that make it even harder for, you know, aspiring writers to actually find representation because there's so much noise out there? I think there's something to that because, I mean, I mean, you could sort of say that that Amazon and all these things have created more of a level playing field that, you know, I can get published without an agent. I can get published without an editor or a publisher. I can get my book out there. Well, you probably can, but there's still, you know, unlikely that anybody's going to read it. And it's unlikely anybody's going to download it. I mean, there are one in a million that do, and it pays off, and they hit it big. But there's a really good reason, I think, for agents, editors, and that's because it creates a kind of sifting process. I mean, it allows, you know, I mean, I have, was asked, I was asked to, to judge a, a contest for the Kobo uh, recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, thank God they went through all the entrants and they whittled it down to the final five before they gave it to me. But if they'd given me the hundred that had entered, I'd have just said, I, forget it. I can't do it. I don't have time. And, and agents and editors have a, you know, a lot, or agents particular are a great filtering process because when they call up an editor or a publisher, the publisher knows, okay, if you think this has some merit, it probably does. And so I still think that they're immensely valuable in the process. But it's true. Things are changing. I mean, you can get your book out there on your own. And there, and there have been occasions where people have done it that way and the book has taken off and it has been downloaded you know a few million times and then a publisher steps up and says okay we want a piece of the action we're going to buy this and put out hard copies and you'll make even more and that's happened but it's so much of it is a crapshoot yeah yeah well linwood thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today yeah, this Pleasure was uh, this was great, and I uh, I wish you all the best of luck and and future future success. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. All right. Well, there you have it. My interview with Linwood Barclay. Great guy. Fantastic interview. I thought so anyway. Hope you thought so too. If you did, please consider telling other people about this podcast. It uh, it really helps when. Uh, people say something nice about it to their friends, and that way we get some new listeners. So we always appreciate it when you do that. If you want to learn more about Linwood, you can go to linwoodbarclay.com. And if you want to learn more about me, Mike Carlin, and my novels, please visit michaelcarlinauthor.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I. And for all the great people who work so hard to put Uncorking a Story together, this is Mike Carlin saying, until next time. <laughs>